there everyone, it's Lauren and this is the Improv Teachers. I'm really excited about this month's guest, but before we get into all about that, I'm really frustrated with my um, software right now. So, so I'm really just frustrated with my software right now because I'm working off of a Chromebook which doesn't use an operating system and so I had to switch over to some things and I can't get it cleaned up as well as I want. So, for example, the last episode and this episode have a lot of background noise and I really, really apologize. Even with all that, I don't want to hold up these interviews, so I'm pushing them out. And then as I find the software, I'll go back and I will clean them up and I will re uh, put them up there. I'll, I'll readjust and, and hopefully they will just sync with your RSS feed. Uh, it's really driving me absolutely crazy. So please, hopefully you stick through it, turn the volume up, put your earphones on. I don't know. They're just really good episodes and I'm apologize to the instructors who gave me their time and I'm really, again, driving me crazy. So this month we have Ryan Suffrage. Ryan is an improviser who rekindled his love of improv back in 2010 when he joined the National Comedy Theater as a member of their college team and later the Sunday Company and Main Stage teams. He has studied at NCT, FCI, Side Stage Improv, the Pack Theater, and more. He currently plays with San Diego indie team Slack to the Future and We Crooked Swedes. He loves honest and slow improv, but is very comfortable jumping into the more whimsical side of things. He's also one of the founders of Cornerstone Improv. It's an inclusive space in San Diego to help people get better at improv. They share their love of improv with other teachers uh, through classes and workshops. So they're giving you all these sort of like extra credit workshops. It's really cool. And uh, they're looking to just elevate and support what is already in place. For those of you lucky enough to know Ryan, you know he's a great guy. For those of you who don't, please bear with us during the sound and get to know Ryan because he's amazing. And it really means a lot that you guys like power through as I'm dealing with all of this technical stuff. It should be easy to run a podcast. Apparently, uh, that's not the deal. So uh, you guys are great. You guys are awesome. Uh, I love getting to talk to teachers. I'm really excited about this one. And here we go. It's the Improv Teachers, Ryan Suffrage. by asking if you remember the first improv class you ever taught. Uh, yeah, I do remember uh, the first one. It, it, it actually wasn't that long ago. Like The actual class was, I think, two years ago. Okay. Um, and it was a level one class at Old Town Improv Company in San Diego. Um, it was such an amazing experience uh, doing level one, I think. Uh, for the first class that I taught, I taught workshops and things in the past before that, but having actual new people come in uh, was just an amazing experience and watching them grow um, from people who had only watched improv to people who were actively doing it and doing it well by the end of the class. Um, was, was this like an eight-week class? Yeah, it was an eight-week class. Uh, sort of stereotypical and in level one, you know, we want to dip our toes in and make them want more. And so it's, it's not, uh, my job was to facilitate and create a space where everybody felt welcome and that they could fail. That was my big push for me personally was I want these people to feel like they can put themselves out there and fail and still feel successful at it. How do you think you go about creating that? Uh, if, if your goal is to let them be successful in finding their way and, and whatnot, do you do you have an approach to that? Um, or I 
think personally, I, I love to celebrate successes uh, in the class and not put a ton of weight on the times that people are failing, but to also find the good in it. Because there's always going to be a learning lesson in everything that we do. And to, I guess, uh, twist it, uh, twisting is sort of the wrong word, but... Uh, like reframe it? Shine a light on it. Yes, yeah, frame it in a way that the person doesn't feel like they're bad for doing it. Uh, it's just, you know, there are other ways to do this, but the way you did it was fine. You know, right. it, it's not, it, it's totally just framing it in a way that allows the student to learn from it, but not feel bad about doing it. Sure. With um, with this particular class, and then we'll start to broaden out from there, but from this particular class, because it was within established theater, uh, was the curriculum, the curriculum that they provided you, was it real tight, like you have to do the following exercises, or was it more of a loose structure of like, uh, this week we'd like you to focus on this, but go ahead and pick your own exercises? Um, I was given a list of exercises and told that I could use them or not. Okay. Uh, and so I sort of looked at what they were trying to do with the exercises, and a lot of them I didn't necessarily – I liked the idea of it, but not the, uh, I guess, how they were doing it. And so I just tweaked them, um, just using different exercises that I've learned in the past and what worked for me and, and also things that didn't work for me because not everybody learns the same way. So, right. Uh, trying not to make it about how I learn how I teach, but how multiple people could understand the same ideas, I guess. So when you... Sort of... Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Finish that word. Oh, um, and knowing where the second class was, a level two was really helped me, and, and I just wanted to always make sure that if people were to continue, which quite a few people from that class did, um, that they would be set up for success in that second class, because I, I know that that's a lot of times where people get in their heads a lot is that second, third class. And um, so I wanted to get, set them up for success for that as well. I'm always curious, because uh, I think this half, I, I agree with you that people start to get heady in like the levels two and three, and like those middle levels. What do you think it is about like that sort of area of like where we are in our improv that makes the students start to become a headier student? I think that we're delving into things that aren't at surface level. You know, I mean, we can work on object work and teamwork and things like that. And that, that is all, I guess, surface level and easy to explain and easy to do. Um, but I think a lot of times, too, is when you get into that second or third level, you're not just resting on that, you know, I'm a funny person thing. You know, like we're actually delving into how improv works and starting to think about, you know, whether the students know it or not, theory and, and character work and things like that. And, and I think that you start getting more, I guess, studious um, with it. Um, I think level one is, is really awesome and it's a gateway into improv and uh, it's there to have fun and get people to want more and that, but then you start getting into deeper subjects and I think people start feeling self-conscious about it. Uh, yeah. So I, I think it's just, it, it, it's about getting over that. Yeah. Uh, which is hard. I, I mean, we all want to succeed and again, it's all about those failures and how can we set up students to feel like they're succeeding even if they're not hitting the mark every time and know that 
so going back a little, when you said like you would take a you would take a look at the exercise, um, how do you approach an exercise? So this is always a usually there's a pretty standard way way we do this, but I think it's very helpful. I say this a lot on the podcast. Like it's very helpful for the teacher out there who uh, ha- is just like new in their own journey. So how do you when you look at an exercise uh, and you think about applying it to the classroom or the students? How do you look at it in terms of, like, do you look at it and go, okay, what is the outcome and objective for this exercise? Uh, are there certain things I'm looking for so when I watch a scene, I can give uh, input based on that? Like, how do you approach it? I mean, that's pretty close to it. It's just, it's, it's about looking at all the steps to it. And, and are these all going to, going to work towards that goal? So for me, it's, it, what is the goal? Uh, and do the, does the exercise move somebody along towards that goal. I don't necessarily care if they hit that goal exactly, but as long as they're moving forward and feeling like they're uh, learning and that they're, uh, again, just just, uh, progressing. Uh, I don't ever want an exercise to make somebody backslide. Right. uh, I guess. So it's just about looking at it as as a holistic, as a whole, does the exercise do what I need it to do? Do you, because some people are very, uh, everybody's different. Like I will, um, and I think I do this because I know that people, that we're training people from within. So at some point I'm going to have a new teacher come in and instead of me trying to reinvent the wheel again, I'm like, here's a bunch of things I've already created. Uh, do you find yourself uh, like literally writing out the steps or is it just like, oh, I know what it is. I just need to like think about it for a moment and then like go into the classroom. Um. So I'll write out the steps. Um, in that particular class, I sat down with the artistic director there, um, and we went over the class and sort of what they had done in the past. And so I wrote down all the steps that way, and then any other exercise that I had done in the past with other teachers or the workshops and things like that, sort of wrote down all the different steps for it, and that's for me. Um, and then prior to the class, I'll reread them, refresh, and then I sort of have like a little cheat sheet in class, uh, and, and I go from there. And sometimes I'll be in the middle of an exercise and be like, no, this isn't working uh, for what I need it to do. So let's just let's stop this, tweak it a little bit. Um, sometimes just watching the students do it, uh, you realize, okay, well, for this particular class, this is not going to work. So how can I tweak it to make it work for these people? Right, and successful. So moving forward a little bit, now you uh, you teach other classes and you create your own classes. What is your approach um, when you are going to be creating or teaching your own class? Are you working from a place of this is the end goal and then work backwards, or do you have a different kind of um, approach to it? Yeah, so I mean, right now I'm doing a lot of uh, sort of mid-term workshops, I guess. Um, so not as long as an eight-week class, but longer than just a one-off workshop. So I'm looking at, uh, again, like right now I'm doing a, I'm co-teaching a Slacker class, uh, teaching the form to a group. And so the end goal is a class show. We want them to be able to perform the form and see how it feels in front of a group of people. So we have, we have three weeks to do that. Uh, and so how can we break it up in a way that's palatable for the people. So it's, it's sort of taking a look at the end goal, taking a look 
we have to do it, and how can we frame that in a way that uh, people are going to understand it. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. We're going to, um, I want to dive into that a little deeper in a moment, but I want to sort of just ask you some of your approaches. Uh, so it's always interesting to me to talk to male teachers and female teachers because we've just had very different experiences. And then again, depending on the kind of class and whatnot, do you go over uh, like a series of expectations um, and maybe like students' rights or whatnot at the top of your classes? Yes, I do. I, I feel very strongly about it. Um, there was a little bit of a shake-up in the San Diego community, and prior to that, I was starting to just delve into all these different like harassment policies and, and how to create safe places for students. Um, it's so integral to the work that we do because we're really opening ourselves up and showing people who we are that the class is a safe space. So I'm very adamant on going over um, uh, the harassment policy, allowing people multiple ways to uh, report anything that goes on, and the uh, uh, just what it boils down to and what I tell my classes is we need to have the utmost respect for each other, and if that isn't happening, my job as a teacher is to call it out, and I will call it out. Uh, I think a lot of people have trouble feeling like maybe they're crossing a boundary by calling it out in their classes. Mm -hmm. I, if I start seeing something go down a road that I don't want it to go to, um, as you know, I mean, we've been doing this long enough to know sort of the trajectory of something. Right. Maybe it won't go there, but if there's a high chance of it going there, I have to stop it, and that's my job um, as a teacher. Especially in either the lower levels and or like these shorter classes, right? We just don't have the... Exactly time to explore this, if you will. So um, so I always, always say that they have a right, students have a right to stop a scene at any time. I have yet for a student to stop a scene. Have you had a student stop a scene yet? I had a student stop a scene, but not for any sort of, like, uh, I guess, harassment or uh, just the, the subject of it. Okay. Um, I had a student that would continually stop scenes if they didn't like what was happening in them. Uh, well, that's a different issue, right? <laughs> a whole different issue, <laughs> which we worked out. But I've never had a student stop a scene for feeling uncomfortable. And, and um, I think some of that is just, as a teacher, seeing where it's going yeah. know, and, and stopping it myself or guiding it to a different direction. You know, I... I um, see a scene going into like a, a, a direction that I don't want it to go to because I know it's not going to be good for anybody in the scene. I'm going to say, why don't we focus on this topic that you're working on instead of the other topic? And, uh, I find that people are pretty open to that. Right. Uh, because a lot of times the students, they don't know that they're going in that direction. They're in the moment. So stopping it won't create the habit of it, I guess. Yeah. I also find a lot of times students, just because they're students and they're in this learning mode, is that they may not even see it coming because they're not truly listening to the other person because they're worried about what they're going to say next or what they have to do or what I've asked them to do. So that nudge a lot of times is that they didn't even see it, right? So it's like, oh, yeah, we'll go follow that. And then they find success. Um, with what they're doing. I want to go back to the student, though, that was stopping scenes because they didn't like where it was going. <laughs> um, 
I, I love that because it's that's like one of the things you're trying to drill in improv of the scene is never going to go where you thought it was going to go. So how do you guys overcome that? Um, well, the, in this particular scene, um, I, I, I became very close and, and we're friends now, but we, uh, they get a couple of times where in that scene, a, a person just wouldn't remember a name or remember a certain, like, specific about the character that the student was playing, and they would get, like, visibly upset in the scene to the point where they would just shut down mm. and then just either walk away or say, or, like, call it out. And so, uh, during a break, uh, happened at like a very big, like it was a big sort of blow up and I, I just pulled them aside and, and I listened to them and you know that a lot of people just, we just want to be heard uh, in it. And so I listened to them and listened to their frustrations and I said, you know, like the scene isn't necessarily about your name. It's not about the fact that you were a cousin to the person that you were on with. Like those are very surface level things. Um, but did the person that you were on stage with remember how they felt about you? You know, remember the important things and sort of walk them through that. And by the end of it, they're like, okay, so I just need to let it go. And, and it was an important step for them because they weren't able to let it go. Um, just by walking them through it and, and why certain things don't necessarily matter. Yes, I would love it if the, the other student had remembered them. That would be great, but there's always going to be times where you don't. It'd be great if I remembered names when I'm performing. Um, <laughs> and I think that's partially because also just my own personal training was that like at the end of the day, the name wasn't the important thing. So to this day, yeah. I'm still like, ah, I named you. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, I don't know what that yeah. is. You know, I have, a, I have like a, a, a stable of like eight names and it's all people that either my siblings. Right. or people that I'm super close to, um, and I've never had somebody come up to me and said, you know, you really named characters Josh a lot. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, and, and to me, like, I'm like, dang, I used my brother's name again, like, like three times in this show. Yes. Like, it doesn't matter. Right. It really doesn't matter. And, and I think that goes the opposite way, you know, if you don't remember it, I, no one's going to come up to you and be like, well... You, you call this person three different names, like, I just don't think that it matters at the end of it. Yeah, uh, and, and there's just so many, like, there's so many, I think, things going on for the student that they're trying to grasp onto, like, one or two things they can control, and a name is something they can control. Totally. Yeah. Uh, so what, um, so because... Your, I think because your approach, and you'll tell me if I'm wrong or not, because, but I think your approach, because your approach is holistic and about having them find success and even giving them the nudge during the scene and being, being willing to stop scenes, I would surmise from all of that, then you don't get a lot of quote-unquote problem behaviors that uh, sometimes can come up um, in scenes. Am I, is that true? Um, I would say that that's like mostly true. You know, there's always uh, a few students that I'll, I'll have to go and sort of pull aside, you know, um, because they're just not hearing what's happening. And, and I get that, you know, with a lot of side coaching and things like that, it can be hard to stay focused and hear everything. So if I start noticing like maybe two or three times where I've given the same note, 
Um, I'll pull the student aside and just have a conversation about it. Um, and I think a lot of times they're open and willing to hear that because they don't under they don't realize what's happening because uh, they're in the scene. You know, they're not seeing that they're doing the same, starting to create a habit. Uh, so I think that that's sort of our role as a teacher that is to stop it when it's happening and to have a conversation with the student that it continues to happen. So I think uh, what's, again, helpful for people who are out there, because uh, we'll say that a lot, like, oh, have a conversation with a student. I think a newer teacher then gets terrified. How do you start that conversation with this? Like, how do you personally start that conversation with the, with the student? Um, I'm, uh, like, it, it's like very much a constructive session. Um, it can't be all about, sorry if you heard my dog, she sounds like an old man. <laughs> um, uh, it's a constructive conversation, so I always have to think beforehand, you know, uh, what can I talk to them about that they're just, like, really doing great, um, because I don't want it to seem like an attack at all, um, so I'm very careful in the way that I uh, approach the subject, so I'll, I'll just start talking to them and, and say, you know, like, you're really doing these characters that are amazing, but um, I just want you to know that I'm starting to notice that... Um, I can see you come into this with an idea, and you're not hearing the other person. So keep up that character work, but I want you in the next scene to hold back a little bit. I want you to let them start the scene off. I want you to uh, let listen to them, give it three seconds after they say what they say. Really hear them, repeat it in your head, and for the next scene, I want you to do that. So I, I try to frame it in a way that it's not like condemning them for what they're doing, right. but gives them a tool to succeed in the next time, the next time that they're up on stage. And I think that good, I think that's a super important piece to it is that uh, we as teachers, we're noticing something and, and if we're going to call it out, then we better have a tool that the student can use in the next scene, right? Because I, I personally get frustrated when someone's like, oh, uh, and I understand what they're saying because I've been doing it long enough, but if you're especially but not everyone does, like, oh, all you ever need is yourself and your partner. Yeah, I get it, but here I am completely lost. What can I do right now? Right? Like my brain is locked up, I'm frozen, I where can I grab? Um, so I think that's a super important piece of like, I'm noticing this. Here's what I'd like for you to try or do, and here's a tool to do it. Yeah, and, and there are always going to be moments where, you know, where we as speakers aren't going to know the exact answer to it. Um, so if someone's a little bit more advanced, I'll even ask them, like, what do you think we can do yeah. if I don't know? I'll just flat out say, I'm not sure how to fix this issue. Um, I don't really call it an issue. Right. I feel like framing it negatively um, isn't great. But uh, what can we do to work together to, to work on this? Um, how do you see this? And then have a conversation about it. And, and I think that that's an okay uh, thing. We're not going to know the answers all the time. But as a teacher, you should be prepared to do that, I think. Uh, right. And I think that that's, that's sort of, once you get to that level and you're able to teach, that's sort of a, a, an important aspect of that. Can you do that? Um, and at yeah. that point, I think you're probably ready to teach. Right. Yeah. Um... Uh, yeah, we're going to dig at that, uh, I, I agree, a little bit later. But, okay, so let's talk a little bit about um, 
slacker because uh, there's not many of us, I feel, that teach it consistently and or perform it on an ongoing basis. Uh, yeah. yeah, and you are doing both. So that's exciting. Yeah, I love it. Um, so I have a, a buddy, Matt Spielen, who we started um, Cornerstone and Pop together here in San Diego. And I would say about maybe five years ago, um, he came down from L.A. to live in San Diego. And we were both performing at a short-form theater that did some long-form. And he wanted to put a team together to do the slacker. And I had never heard of it before. And he had done... Uh, up in LA, he was on Slacker teams and they had Slacker nights where it was all people doing the form. And so he taught that to me. He taught me the form as well as the team. And I just fell in love with it. I, I love the freedom uh, within it. Uh, there's obviously a structure to it, but um, you get to do everything. Uh, and so we had that team, did a few different festivals, and uh, eventually moved to different theaters and we started a new team to do the slacker because we love it so much. Uh, about a year and a half, maybe two years ago now. Uh, I'm really bad at this. That's okay. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so it, it, it was, it's something that I love and, and not like you said, not very many people do it. So now that we have a platform to teach what we want to teach, um, we decided to a workshop on it because we're the only team in San Diego that's doing it. So something that um, for me, the slacker is deceptively simple on the surface, and yeah, yeah and there's a lot of uh, traps you can find yourself in uh, if you're not aware. Uh, and I think that it takes a lot of um, just running it and doing it and playing in it and having someone there who can who can guide you through it. Uh, but when teaching it, um, I know that like I scale down a bunch. To, do you guys have like are do you guys have an approach you're taking? Because you know that there's so much that you kind of have to put into these students' brains in three weeks and then have them up on stage with it. Yeah. So. We looked at it. I mean, we're only doing about six hours of instruction, so we can't go super deep into it. Um, so what we did was we broke it apart into three sections. Um, to me, the most important section and, uh, is, is that opening scene, that base scene. Yeah. Um, it lays the groundwork for the entire piece. I tell people that the slacker is like the ultimate, like, if this, then what, um, because what's true in that base scene has to be true for that world. And so if you're going to start at like a 10 in that base scene, where do you go from? <laughs> right. Uh, so we try to keep it as, uh, and as cliche as it sounds, just as grounded and slice of life as possible in that base scene because just the very nature of it can lead to some pretty insane places. So we actually, last night was our first week of the three-week class, all we did was base scene. Okay. Um, and we started it off in a way that uh, I think worked really well, was to just have them up on stage as themselves, have them do object work, and give them a topic to talk about. And at the end of that, we were able to say, look at how interesting that was, just to have you 
talk about a topic as yourself. So then we only did two exercises. It was that, and then do it as a character. Mm. Uh, and then obviously, like while we're doing that, I want the students to be thinking about different characteristics that are popping up for each um, each team. Right. So that when the second week comes, we're going to be teaching uh, the flashback. Is what I like to call it. So two flashbacks that we do, uh, and then start working into the ad runs and things like that. Uh, while the third week is wrapping it all up. Right, and putting it all together. So um, for us, our base scenes are two-person scenes as well. Like it's just that two-person scene. We got to start establishing a lot of um, a lot of details, like you said, but also not get at a 10 because Slacker can go to 10 and to stay up there is really difficult. Uh, and for me, that means that these players have to be good at two person, just like scene work. Yeah. Yeah. It just comes it's down tough. to scene work. It's tough. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, even last night, we just, uh, for us, it was like, for this first class, I just want you to be doing something because this has to be interesting for the audience. And 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 doing that scene work, doing that object work, and and our big thing too, and this is a, a our thought on the form is that that base scene, it just needs to be like two people who respect each other, having a conversation, and that is so infinitely enjoyable to me that right. I can watch that and pull so many things out of it, whether it's how somebody reacts to it, um, you know, something just blatantly stated, uh, fine at this level when we're just teaching it, you know. Yeah. Uh, so something that I uh, connected recently, and I'm sharing this, uh, so that whole, like, you know, if this is true, what else is true kind of thing, um, I've always... Um, I don't know. I, I've struggled in some ways with because uh, it's because just based on like my, my style. And there's this um, there's this thing that we do in like if people who are like executive coaches. It actually comes straight out of a book called The Coaching Habit, and they call it awe. A W E is and what else? So when you're executive coaching and you're working with somebody on leadership and they're struggling about something, you go great. And what else? And you keep like digging into that. Uh, and what I love about, so I took that and I made it improv. So I made it into like, yes, and what else? And replaced that with my, if then, what else? And, and here's why I figured out finally after all this time why that if then, what else was bothering me. It was that it was assuming, and I know that it's a tool to help you yourself start to look at scenes differently, but it's also making this large assumption, at least for me, that the person uh, I'm standing next to is making the same exact assumption. And so when I make this statement, if they're not, then they have to adjust quickly or they have to figure out. Whereas if I say, yes, if then, and what else, I'm then able to say, okay, you just laid that if then what else, but I'm able to yes and it. And to me, that's very improv. Like I can and it alongside you and together, we have something cool versus just one of us running on one idea. Uh, it's just something I've been using lately. I'm throwing that out there to everybody. You're welcome. <laughs> no, I love that a lot. 
I think that that's super smart. And and a lot of times when I say things like, like you know, if this is true, what else is true? Uh, for me, that's just a way to think about it within it, you know? Right. Um, I want people that are learning it, the people that I'm playing with, constantly thinking, I mean, as much as they can. Uh, if this is the way that it's done in this world, what does that mean? Like, you right. Know, what does that mean for it? So that foundation is there, but what it means could be made by anybody. Yeah. Yeah, um, for sure. Said, like it is still that everybody puts up one block at a time. Right. Um, and uh, I think that that's such a cool thing about it. Right. So you now have this platform with Cornerstone, and I know what I know what you're doing, but I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what you're doing in terms of um, promoting and including and making sure that diversity is happening both in your classes and your teaching staff. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, when we, when Matt and I sat down, uh, we wanted to teach, but we were, neither of us were teaching at the moment. And we saw that in San Diego, um, there are already three, te- three uh, schools teaching levels. We already knew right off the bat that we didn't want to do that. There's three places doing it well. Why try to enter into that space? Because we also didn't want it to be competitive in any way. Um, this isn't something that at least at the start of it or even on the our list of to-dos is to make a ton of money at. You know, mm-hmm. We just want to be sustaining and not have money necessarily come out of our pocket. Uh, we will do that if we need to, but um, we would like to not. Um, and so, uh, so that was our first step. So what can we do to supplement this community to help uh, the people that have gone through these levels to continue learning? Because it's so important that we don't just go through level six and then perform. You know, I, that's great, uh, but in the long run, you'll become stagnant if you're not constantly learning. Uh, and that can be very expensive. So that was our second thing. You know, we what can we do to supplement, and what uh, can we do to keep the prices down? Uh, so part of that was to do. We, we came up with doing two to four week long workshops. And our, I guess, mission statement, if you were to put it down as that, is to share our love of improv with the San Diego community. So when we reach out to a teacher. We say, what do you love about improv, and how can we turn this into a two to four week workshop? Um, so that's super important to us. The other thing that's important to us is to make sure that the community in San Diego is as diverse as possible. And unfortunately, how it is just in general, I guess, in comedy, a lot of times in the world, is that there's a lot of straight white males. There's nothing inherently wrong about that, but that limits the perspective. And uh, I think that as people that are starting a, uh, a school, it's up to us to try to facilitate a more diverse uh, group of performers and teachers. So we work with a few different people on creating an inclusion scholarship uh, where right now, uh, it's a one C3 space in every one of our classes to uh, someone that's from an underserved community. And uh, we leave it pretty open. Uh, we don't request that somebody explains to us why they feel 
scholarship um, if they feel like they could. So by all means, they can. They have the space to do that. But it's not really up to us to choose um, whether the person, I guess, deserves the scholarship. I don't want it to ever be um, people feeling like they don't deserve it or anything like that. It's, it's very open. And we try to stay as hands-off with it as possible. So you sign up for it, and we just assign you a number, and we do a random number generator for whoever gets it. Oh, okay. And that was important to us as two white males doing this. We couldn't have any choice in the matter. You know, it's not cool. Like, <laughs> on paper, like, that's not cool. <laughs> person choosing this. Right. We should have no hand in it. I want to create the space for it and let it uh, let it happen, you know. So depending on the amount of people that apply, uh, one person will get the free spot. Um, and then if we have openings in the class still, we try to give a discount to other people uh, because we do have an overhead and we still need to hit that. Right. But we want to supplement uh, people being able to afford these classes. Sure. Um, and so uh, like our first class that Matt and I taught, we kept all the teaching fees from that to be able to supplement further classes for the inclusion scholarship. Oh, great. So, and, and then with teachers, we just want to see as many different types of people up there teaching as possible. And uh, we're working now to create a, I guess, not necessarily a training program, but a way for people who ne haven't necessarily taught to be able to do, like, one-off workshops. Okay. And, learn how to teach, because there's only so many um, opportunities to teach in a community. Right. Um, so that's super important to us, too. And so we're working on creating a program to allow people to come in and teach a two-hour workshop and get paid for it and feel good about it. And if they need to work on the content with us, we're there to do that with them. Uh, this is, again, it just comes down to us wanting to share and solve our love of it with the community. So whatever we can do to do you think then that one of your courses might actually turn into essentially a train the trainer workshop? So you can, you know, hey, improvisers who've never taught, you're interested. Here's three weeks on teaching. Um, I think that that's an amazing, I, uh, an amazing thing. I would love to have somebody do that. Well, I'm coming. So. <laughs> yeah, no, I honestly, like, if you're, you come down, you can do that. Okay. Uh, uh, it's not necessarily a strong point on me. I don't know if I could teach somebody how to teach. Uh, and that's another part of it, is if I don't know how to do it, I'm going to find somebody else that knows how to do it. Sure. Uh, and from what I, um, from the teachers that have been teaching, though, you guys, because uh, what I'm curious is, are they coming to you or are you going to them? Because you guys are doing a great job of not just interesting courses, but from people who are from all backgrounds and who are representing all uh, everything. And it's not just, uh, like you said, straight white male teachers either. Uh, so are they approaching you or were you, are you approaching them or is it a mix of both? It's a mix of both. You know, um, we're aware of, I guess, the background of a particular instructor, um, that is always in our minds, uh, and, but we're not, 
going to limit, let that limit us, I guess. Okay. Um, and if it comes to it, if somebody has a really awesome idea for a class, um, and we have the space for them to do it, we're going to let them do that. Um, so I, I just think that we're really lucky in that a lot of the people that we just love and adore, um, they're just a diverse group of people. Sure. Um, so it's definitely important for us, and it's, um, I guess it's, it's on the list of things that is super important to us, but uh, I guess we're not choosing somebody for, for that reason, right. but that is like a, a great part of it, you know, and you have to think about that, uh, I think. I, I yeah. think it's super important. Uh, so yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. No, it does, it does. So what do you, when you have to like, when you have to sit down and think about it, what do you makes a good teacher? I think it just comes down to listening, um, and I guess being able to listen and interpret. Like we talked about a little bit before, are you able to listen to what's happening? And, and by listen, I always take that as all of our senses, uh, hopefully not taste, um, <laughs> but everything else, you know, and, and again, maybe not feel, but eyes and, eyes and ears, um, and then just that like feeling inside, I don't even know how to... Uh, interpret that, but just that, like, I guess, uh, I don't know, just you, you get a feeling, um, and you can see that in other people, but if people are able to listen and interpret to what's happening, interpret what's happening, and like we said earlier, if they're able to form a way to, um, form a way to communicate with a student to keep them progressing, uh, I think that that's what's important. And some people aren't going to have that naturally, but they have the drive to learn it. Uh, and I think that that's important to understand as well. Uh, so facilitating that. And maybe it'll take them a little bit longer. Maybe they need to shadow a three or four classes before they even think about doing like a workshop or anything like that. But, yeah. Yeah, I think that in the end, it's, it's all about listening, and it's all about being able to take that and make something happen. Right so does that, would that tie in also if you had some advice to give someone who's, like, thinking about listening, I mean, listening, <laughs> about teaching, um, that, that listening skills are important, that shadowing's important, what, do you think there's any other advice you would give to someone? Um, yeah, I think, let me think on that for a second. Sure. I think that if somebody has the drive to teach, if somebody were to come up to me and say, hey, I really want to teach, I'm going to ask them why. Too. Yeah. Um, you know, because it can't be about you. Uh, I think that that's a pitfall that we fall into a lot. Um, I've had people that have taught me that made it about them. And and I think that that's a pitfall that a lot of young teachers fall into as well. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's about letting go of what I would do, and yes. finding out what this person does best, and how do I facilitate them in growing what they do best, and pushing them a little bit. You can't be afraid to push them, but you can't push them in your direction, uh, and that's really hard. Uh, yeah. uh, I remember there's a few times I do workshops, just one-off, like two-hour workshops, and it was about my idea, and not about creating a space for their ideas to flourish. Yeah. And 
never work. Right. <laughs> and I was like well, beating myself up for it. I'm like, why am I doing this? And why aren't people understanding it? And I realized it's not about uh, it's about again creating a space where somebody can grow and be pushed and, uh, in a constructive and well-meaning way. And I definitely think that's something though that a lot of new teachers, especially in improv, do run into. And and I think that's for a variety of reasons. One is as the new teacher we're trying to figure out what our philosophy now is as a teacher, not necessarily an improviser. And yeah. what we know best is ourselves, right? So we're like, oh, well, here's a bunch of ideas I would have done, but that's not helpful to the student in the moment. And, and I feel like the other piece is that, you know, a lot of improv teachers fall into teaching, right? They don't, they love it, they either love it so much or someone's asked them, or, but they don't, they aren't given the skill set or the time to develop and understand that it, this is not about you and saying to a student, here's what I would have done, is never going to be useful. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, but at the, at the same time, just like in improv, we as teachers are going to fail. Uh, yeah, who I was in the very first class I ever taught versus who I am now is a very different teacher. So we also have to give ourselves, for those of us who love to like sit up at four in the morning and revisit every conversation from when they were 12 years old, some, <laughs> like, a little bit of like, okay, that's also a learning curve for me. And as, and, and as long as I was coming from a place that was really trying to do right, then the student's going to be okay. Exactly. And, and I, I mean, even in the class last night that I taught, there was a moment where I said, why don't you go down this path, you know? Uh, and at the end of it, I told the student, I said, you know, what you were doing wasn't bad. There was nothing wrong with it. Um, and the way that the path that I sort of, sort of nudged you on was mine. So understand that and uh, know that I'm not necessarily right. So if you have another way to do something, do it and do it your way. And sometimes I'll do that on accident, you know, like just make you slip into that. Um, like, how would I do this? Uh, but letting the students know, like, everything that I say isn't, I mean, I'm very, like, I'm not infallible. Right. Uh, it's just that in this moment, uh, I have more. One, I'm standing outside of the scene, right? So I can see things that you may not be able to see. And two, um, especially especially in this class in particular, like I just have more experience. So I'm just coming from a place of what I've seen work over time, but that doesn't mean it's an absolute. Exactly, exactly. And, and I always start off uh, generally like with classes and saying, you know, take what works for me. From me, like if something doesn't work for me, throw it to the side. Yeah. You know, like not everything that I say is going to work for you. Right. Um, and not everything that I say is 100% right. So if you have an idea on something, let's talk about it after class. You know, I always make sure that I have at least 30 minutes to an hour after class to talk to the students uh, about anything that they want to talk about. Yeah. Um, and and just work through it with them. And I think that that's super important. We're all on this journey together. I happen to have been on it a little bit longer than you, 
and there are a lot of people that have been on it longer than me. So let's figure it out. For sure. Uh, do you have any, uh, is there anything that like you've been uh, burning to talk about? Uh, any last minute thoughts before I ask where people can find all your good information online? Um, I don't know. I, I, you know, I've been talking a lot with people and maybe we can talk it out a little bit on maybe your thoughts on this. And it's something that I've been pushing myself to do uh, just in improv in general. And that's um, and, and something that I've been, I guess, doing over the last few years is that pushing myself to play with as many people as possible, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and if I start feeling even like the slightest feeling of I don't want to play with this person, uh, realizing that that's me and not them, and I'm going to play with them as much as possible. Uh, do you think that there's any like merit in that, or what are your thoughts on on, on sort of pushing yourself as an improviser? Yeah, I think like so. My personal goal as an improviser is to be the person who can jump on stage with anybody and make them feel safe, and yeah, yeah and let them know that um, I'm not going to bail on them in the middle of a scene, right? Like that's, yeah. I, 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 I tack that as a utility player, right? So some people are like, oh, I'm just really good at initiations and oh, and I know that like, I, like I'm a kick-ass editor. I know that, but that's yeah. not, a, like that's not, I wanna be the utility player. So, yeah. um, so there's a balance uh, for me personally. I, I absolutely want to be able to get onto sta on stage with anybody and everyone, which means I have to find opportunities to do just that, right? Um, so I will, um, we do this show called Cherry Pick where we pick random students uh, and the teachers play with them. So that's like one thing. There's just like mixing up of like asking someone, I, I joke, that um, I never get asked to perform with anybody, but I'm always asking others. <laughs> and, uh, but I also do that because, for the same reason, like I'm pushing myself to grow as a performer. And I know that there's people who get to a point where they're like, well, I put in my time, so I shouldn't have to play with people who still are working out X or working out Y. And when I hear that, I get that, but that also signals to me that improv for them means something very different than improv means for me. Yeah, that's sort of, I, I've heard that a lot. That sums me out. You know, I, there's a, the teams that I play on are people that I want to play with all the time. Right. And that's, for me, that's the space for that. Um, but for me, it's like, how am I going to get better without working with people? And I look back, too, and and... I look at the people that were playing with me when I first started, and they made me so much better right. as a performer by playing with them. And now that I'm at a stage, you know, I, I would say sort of like I'm past the beginning steps of being an improviser. I'm inching into like the, I would say like the, the middle life of it. Mm -hmm. I guess. Um, I, I like in eight, eight, ten years right. into this, um, and not to put myself in a position above anybody, but I think that I can be that to a certain extent for somebody else, and I'm going to be a better improviser by performing with people who are newer in the um, And they're going to make me better. And right. I'm going to work with them, too, and maybe they'll pick up something 
it's the same thing of when someone says, like, I've put in my time and money in classes, so I don't need to be going to workshops. And I, my personal philosophy is um, that of a, I'm always wanting to grow. And if I'm done growing, why am I doing this? And so while a workshop, so I will take workshops, I will go to, I will seek out, and I will take, I, these days, honestly, I prefer to take workshops with people who uh, are earlier in their journey than um, the big names. One is I've already studied with the big names. Um, but that person who is seeking out those opportunities, that means they have most likely the same love and passion that I have, and I will have something to learn from them. That. Yeah. Uh, and it, so it's, it's about, so for me, it's always, okay, well, that person, I, this is the easiest way I can do this. Okay. So there's a, we have a pretty thriving indie scene, which is wonderful. And like people will randomly put teams together to go up and do like one night only things at like various teams that host stuff. That's fantastic. Cause that gives you opportunities. So I saw recently someone named their team. And the second part of the name has the word garbage in it. And I was really saddened. And this is what I think sums me up as an improviser and sums up what other people are like. And one is not necessarily better than the other. It's, it's just knowing your value system and who you are and thus surrounding yourself with the, with the people that fulfill you, right? So for me, improv is is an opportunity to bring joy and laughter into the lives of those people on stage and into the lives of people in the audience. And if an audience is there to watch me and they've paid to see this show, I need to take that consideration and honor them. If my name has garbage in it, I'm signaling to the people I'm on stage with and the people in the audience, I don't give a fuck. Yeah. And what if I... If you don't give a fuck, why should I give a fuck? Um, yeah. Yeah. And that, and I bet if I talk to the person, they would think they're being clever and like tongue in cheek. I don't see it that way. I see it as shitting on what everything I believe in improv should be. <laughs> you know? Yeah, for sure. Right. There's definitely, like, I think overall there's like a, a, a aspect of improv that, I'd like to be changed, and, and that is sort of going along that line, is, like, you know, I, I've gone on stage in, like, a graphic tee or whatever before, but I try to at least, like, present myself in a way that if I were to pay to go see a show, I don't necessarily want to see somebody up there uh, and not putting down cargo shorts or things like that, but, like, I don't want to go up there and somebody with, like, a... a Obviously, there are times for that not to happen. Sure. Uh, but I think that in general, like with naming and things like that, uh, that we're respecting the other people that are up there with us, respecting the people in the audience, and then respecting people that, who knows, maybe they walk by a theater and they see a, a A-frame 
with all these team names on it and you know you see something that's like crap and that would turn you off to it so right. we're not allowing somebody into this art form that we love so much yeah but yeah that's definitely a, a feeling that i have and i try really hard to work at that again there are times that i'll show up on stage uh, graphic right it's gonna happen but yeah, I um, there's there's like two thoughts I have. One is uh, just from an artistic side, I have a dress code at the theater uh, for shows, for that reason, and it's not a super strict dress code, but there's a dress code. Yeah. Um, the second, going back to like playing with everybody, I believe in doing that, and like you said, like I have my team, like my main team, and those are people who we are, you know, we're working to be the best that we can, and and so it's it, it's it there's like a goal, there's a mission statement. What I'm running into is those moments of when I would be able to find people who are better in this and longer, and I could get on stage to push myself to like try to keep up with them. Mm-hmm. Those opportunities are few and far between. I have to leave the area to find those opportunities. Yeah. Um, so that's an interesting... Go ahead. Yeah, and I, yeah, I, I think that that's a, a, a conundrum that so many people in improv sort of get to a space sometimes. You know, I, I, I we have, sorry, I'm trying to formulate my thought on this a little bit. <laughs> um, the, it's tough because, you know, we have these mega centers in like LA, Chicago, and New York, and things like that, but those are for a lot of people to get to. Right. And that's sort of like my thoughts on like inclusion and diversity and things like that. Like let's create, you know, as many people that are on that level as possible. Yeah. But yeah. It's, it's tough. It's tough to, to be in that position. That's why I like I love festivals and I love going to camp and I love uh camp improv utopia. But uh, but uh, things like that is where you can get out of your your city or your space and go and learn from people, you know, we had somebody, uh, uh, I'm going to totally butcher where he's from, but I think it's I come to the San Diego Improv Festival last year. Is, uh, was, awesome. was he from, I thought he was from Norway. That was it. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, I knew, like, I'm so bad with geography. <laughs> You know, if it's out of Southern California, sure. I don't know where it's at. <laughs> That's fair. I have no idea. Um, <laughs> That's yeah, fair. Things like that. Like it's, it's creating opportunities for to bring in people as well as to get people out there. You know, anytime somebody asks me, should I go to a festival, I say yes. And what can I do to facilitate that? Is there a festival that you want to go to? Do I know somebody there? And how can I at least contact them and be like, how can this person be a part of this festival? Right. Uh, you know, if it's just uh, something that festivals are starting to do, and I love it, uh, is to create these, uh, you can submit as a single submission. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, sometimes our teams just aren't to the, to the place where we can submit a video and get into a festival. Uh, and these single submission things are, are amazing. That's a cool thing. I haven't been able to do it yet, but uh, I think that that's really cool. Just having opportunities to get out to the wide world. Again, facilitating that, too. 
too because there are people that don't have the money to do that. So uh, uh, we're lucky in San Diego that we're two and a half hours from LA. Right. So I can bring people down here. Right. Uh, so that's uh, uh, not necessarily a problem that we have, but I can see anywhere else. You know, I, I we go out to Utah every year uh, for off the cuff Red Rock Improv Festival. And, as much access to people from LA as we do in San Diego things like that but they work super hard at getting people out there yeah uh, and it's just it's beautiful to be able to do that and that people are willing to do it you know right uh, right I think people that are in a position of having done this longer uh, I think it's our duty to go out and maybe not make as much money on a job or are keeping the time as we probably could if we were to stick to our city. You know? Yeah. Um, I think that that's super important for people that have the ability to do it. Right. Not everybody has that. Right. Um, yeah. So where, so uh, what, bleh, where can people find information about you or Cornerstone, all that good stuff? So uh, we have a website for Cornerstone, uh, cornerstoneimprov.com. Uh, we also have a Facebook page. Uh, we're one of two different Cornerstone Improvs. One of them is a, a church group from oh. San Francisco um, that we get a lot of email from, oh. uh, people wanting to do that. Um, so if you end up with a, um, like a church website, uh, that's the wrong Cornerstone. Okay. Um, and then uh, I have two teams that are also on Facebook. Uh, one is Slack for the Future. Uh, I'm sure you can figure out what form we do. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, <laughs> And uh, we do the Herald. And uh, <laughs> no. uh, and then I have uh, We Crooked Swedes, which is my duo team. Uh, that Generally, we do a mono theme, but uh, we've got to the point that we're going to hit four years together uh, this year, where if we're five minutes into a mono scene and we decide that we don't want to do it, we don't do it. Yeah. My, um... The first two and a half years we did. And <laughs> right. It was good to commit for that, but not necessarily great for the audience. Right, because, yeah, you got to sometimes, you're like, oh, why did I make this character choice for the next hour? Exactly. <laughs> and, and it comes down to, like, the audience isn't there to see a form. They're there to see a good performance. Yeah, absolutely. So you're going to the spot like that. That's so awesome. All right, well, I'm going to say thank you so much. Uh, I'm super excited, and uh, I'm sure everyone's going to enjoy this as much as I have, so thank you. Awesome. Thank you for having me on. And, and again, I, uh, I think that this is a wonderful art form. Anybody can do it. If you're on the fence for doing it or wanting to teach, uh, reach out. Uh, if you ever want to do something, the worst that can happen is somebody says no and someone says no to another person. So somebody's there to facilitate your uh, or, or facilitate them yourself. <laughs>